1: You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in mathematics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online.
2: Hi, and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus magazine. Coming up in this episode, we talk to a neuroscientist about the newly released game, Hellblade, and its portrayal of psychosis.
3: In a sensory deprivation chamber, where if you remove all sensory input, within a short space of time, a person will be experiencing hallucinations but they usually retain some sort of insight. They know that it's because they're in that setting that uh, their experience in the world has changed.
2: And we catch up with a climate and infrastructure scientist about the UK's recently announced diesel and petrol car ban.
3: So a
0: ban by 2040, in 23 years' time, is it, it, it smacks of a lack of ambition, particularly when other bans introduced by the French have said 2035. So why is it that we we have to wait till children that are born today are 23 years old before they can benefit from that legislation?
1: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.
2: Air pollution is hurting our health. A recent report from the Royal College of Physicians linked poor air quality to 40,000 early deaths a year in the UK. In that context, you can see why the UK government recently announced that it plans to ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars in the UK by 2040. To find out whether this will really clean up the air we breathe, commissioning editor Jason Goodyear spoke to Dr Stephen Hall, a research fellow at the School of Earth and Environment at Leeds University. His work looks at how we can adapt cities to create a low carbon future.
1: Okay, so we've got the government saying that they're going to ban the sale of all petrol and diesel cars by twenty forty. So let let's I think first we need to unpick this a little bit to see exactly what it means. So as I understand it, it's um not all petrol and diesel cars, is it?
0: Um, Well, this is one of the problems. So it's not clear from what the government's published what it actually means. It doesn't mean, as it's published, that there will be no petrol or diesel going into vehicles. All it means that the ICE engines or internal combustion engines, ICE, that don't have any hybrid technology at all in it, it looks like what they're saying is they will be banned from sale by 2040.
1: So we're just talking about 100% combustion engine-powered vehicles.
0: It would seem so, yes.
1: Yeah, so your, 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 your hybrid, like your Prius, that's absolutely, that's going to be fine.
0: At the moment, it seems so, yes. It's difficult to tell because this uh, the way that it's been published, is not entirely clear. And you can understand why, if you were in government, you wouldn't specify exactly which type of engine's. But uh, in the fullness of time, that will come out. But it seems like it does mean just 100% percent fossil fueled cars will be banned from 2040.
1: And it's just cars, so lorries, buses, they'll still be fine to use diesel, presumably.
0: It, it doesn't say, as far as I can determine in legislation. But in terms of what you would expect, it's much, much simpler for... Government to make an announcement about cars and ban those from private sale. And it's much, much easier in the buses and fleet vehicles to rely on things like Euro 5 emission standards, rely on things that already exist for big commercial vehicles.
1: Right. So, sort of maybe naively on first glance to some people, this might look like quite a radical proposal. You know, they're phasing out technology that's been used for decades. So why aren't a lot of, especially environmental campaigners, happy about this?
0: It's a good question. So as an environmental campaigner, sometimes you get asked, why aren't you happy about this? This should be fantastic, particularly around family dinner tables, if you like. But why environmental campaigners have received it with some scepticism is because it could happen much, much earlier. And you see Volvo, for example, have said, we aren't going to make any um 100% fossil fuel powered vehicles after 2019 which is a couple of years away
1: yeah
0: similarly yeah. you know tesla have already got 100% electric fleet each manufacturer knows how to do some form of hybrid some form of full electric or even hydrogen vehicle so a ban by 2040 in 23 years time is it, it's, it smacks of a lack of ambition, particularly when other bands introduced by the French have said 2035. So why is it that we, we have to wait till children that are born today are 23 years old before they can benefit from that legislation?
1: Right. And, I mean, is is it kind of thought that the manufacturers would meet this goal naturally in the market anyway?
0: Yeah, that is a good question. So you would... you. You've got to put this in context. So the government has been in a legal battle over air quality for three or four years now. And the only reason it's published this plan is because it has been forced to do so by the courts. So they're already recalcitrant to do anything substantial on air quality, particularly around private vehicles. If you look back at the history of government intervention in the Transport sector, anything that could be seen as a kind of war on the motorist. So any any intervention by government can be seen as detrimental to private motorists is profoundly unpopular. Wow. So when you then put that in the context of a vehicle fuel type ban, you can see that the government is really hedging its bets here. It already was not received well in the press that you would associate with the constituency of this government it wasn't received well in the newspapers that you would associate with not being particularly happy about this kind of thing anyway so it's, it's a real kind of political hot potato but you can understand why 2040 was was the date that was chosen realistically however it's unlikely that I, I would say, on a market perspective, it's unlikely that anyone would be buying non-hybrid, fossil fuel-only powered cars past twenty thirty anyway.
1: Right. So, sort of just going back slightly there, then. So, exactly how bad is the air quality problem in the UK at the moment?
0: It's it's really quite bad. One of the things that people have found surprising about this is it's you know it's not smoggy anymore. We're not talking about the P-Supers in London. And they were really caused by particulate emissions, which mean because it's particulate, it's kind of visible so you can see it. So it's, that smog issue is is largely being dealt with, but they're PM10 and PM2.5 emissions. And that just means it's, it's kind of stuff that you can see, and yes, it can get in your lungs. The real problem is nitrous oxide, which you cannot see, um, which is de- generated largely by diesel engines. And whilst we have clear air In our cities, we don't have clean air, and the issue that we've been struggling with in UK towns and cities is 146 of them have breached these air quality limits over the past few years, and they've consistently breached them. And nitrous oxide pollution is damaging to lungs and brain, and an awful lot that we don't understand about nitrous oxide's pollution is probably going to come to light over the next five to ten years as the long-term health impacts start to be felt in the health system
1: okay so with that in mind then why is it better to just outright ban petrol and diesel rather than trying to make cleaner petrol and diesel engines
0: (laughs) so a good reason for banning petrol and diesel engines rather than trying to make them cleaner is whilst the automakers have said sorry but they still were cheating on those tests and uh it's, it's It's been shown through the, the Dieselgate scandal that things like regulation on the cleanliness of engines can be game, whereas if you simply ban it, it's much, much more difficult to game that system. Similarly, it's an eye-catching policy proposal. I think it's interesting that petrol was included in that because you could reasonably see that banning a petrol vehicle does not have the same air quality benefits as banning a diesel vehicle does.
1: Right how much more would switching to electric vehicles clean up our air quality? You know, how much of an impact could it make?
0: So the impact of electric vehicles on air quality would be quite high. So you can see that the, the shift recently for private cars has been to diesel. If you move that shift to electric vehicles, you will deal with a substantial element of the, prob- the vehicles that are causing the problem in cities. And the reason is simply tailpipe emissions. I Admit it, I drive a a diesel vehicle, and I know that when you drive that through a town, particularly at times of high congestion, you are really contributing to poor air quality. If you're driving a diesel vehicle, you really get rid of those nitrous oxide emissions. Now, there are other good arguments to say that unless we manage the way we charge our vehicles, all we do is move that dirty um, power to electrical generation rather than tailpipe emissions. But equally, most of that power generation is out of towns and cities. So it would solve the problem of those very local air quality or air quality hotspots. But it would be a bad idea to do that at the expense of shifting that generation somewhere else geographically.
1: Sure. I mean, another concern that a lot of people seem to have about electric vehicles is, first of all, the availability of materials to make the batteries and secondly, their disposal.
0: Availability of what's been come to be known as critical materials, people used to talk about rare earth metals, but there's other kind of lithium and cobalt and all kinds of different materials that go to make up the variant electric powertrains used by different manufacturers. And those materials have got several problems. One is their just geological availability, so their abundance in the surface of the earth. Some of them, it's uncertain whether there is enough to meet the demand for if everybody, and we don't just mean in the UK, if there was a global shift to electric vehicles, uh, how much simple abundance is there to be able to satisfy our need? So that's a legitimate question. There are people working on it and there, is, there are differing views. There's no kind of consensus yet and it's different for each material, so it doesn't really lend itself to a quick pricey. But equally, a lot of those... there's an ethical issue of the supply chain like how much of those critical materials are sourced from mines which are managed in such a way that they don't commit high levels of toxic environmental pollution and have really detrimental social issues and then the final kind of non-technical issue is the geopolitical problems of single supplier nations some of which are quite volatile Others are kind of more in terms of geopolitics in that China produces an awful lot of these critical materials, sometimes eighty to ninety percent market share, so if you 're the u s or europe and you're you're pinning your climate hopes on changing your vehicle fleet to electric, then clearly that's got a security of supply implication for you and
1: then just going back to the time scale slightly, um, I know that um, Michael gave us. Was- is put aside, I think it's £250 million for local measures that he calls something like surgical incentives or, so, or something like that. I mean, do, do you think there's, there's more immediate measure, measures like this or Sadiq Khan's toxic um, tea charge to go on top of the congestion charge that's already in London? Do you think something like that is is, is really going to make a big difference?
0: Oh, absolutely so we've been talking a lot about the ban on petrol and diesel vehicles and it's eye catching so people are like, oh i'm not going to be able to drive the cars that i've been used to driving but the real reason the environmental campaigners are skeptical is is that's really a distraction what would work now are things like an enhanced congestion charging scheme in london congestion charging in towns and cities that already breach air quality limits, much better investment in active modes and better transport planning and taking private vehicles off the road and cleaning up the public transport fleet, particularly buses. There are a bunch of things that we can do right now that don't require any technological development whatsoever. And the real problem that environmental campaigners have had is the government has put the onus for developing these on local government, which is already stretched, is already kind of overburdened. And if it puts it on local government, then it becomes about local politics, and some cities will go for it and some cities won't. Whereas if central government were to just act and legislate and make this happen at a central level, that would be much more effective than any kind of vehicle fueling ban in the kind of far and distant future.
2: That was Dr Stephen Hall. On the face of it, you might not think that a video game called Hellblade and Van Gogh's iconic painting Starry Night have much in common. But bear with me for a moment. In June 1889, Vincent Van Gogh painted the view from his window at dawn. At the time, he was looking out of the Saint Paul Asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, where he had admitted himself after mutilating his own ear. Today, some scientists believe that Van Gogh suffered from psychosis and that this condition affected the way he saw the world. So when we look at Van Gogh's sweeping brushstrokes and vivid colours, we're actually getting an insight into how someone suffering with psychosis might see the world. Today, well over 100 years later, a new game called Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, attempts to do just that in 3D. We spoke to Professor Paul Fletcher, a clinical psychiatrist who worked on the game, about how he, together with the developers, tried to create a realistic perspective on psychosis. For people who might not have seen or heard of the game, could you briefly just describe Hellblade, uh,
3: what it is and what it's about? Sure. So it's a, it's a, a sort of an over-the-shoulder role-playing game in which the uh, player takes the perspective uh, of uh, an 8th century Pictish warrior. And she has uh, got to fight her way through to a Viking hell in order to retrieve the soul of her lover, Dillion, who's been sacrificed. So Senua is, is the heroine. Now, that that's the game. Um, the, the sort of additional and very unusual component is that Senua is suffering from uh, a psychosis, which has partly emerged out of the traumatic experience that that she's had. So by by psychosis, I mean she she's experiencing an altered reality with voices and visions and and sort of bewildering uncertainty so it's an attempt to engage um um with mental illness but in the context of what is intended primarily as a as a game hmm. and so h- how did your involvement sort of set out did the developers come to you for advice so, th- three years ago or so, um, I got a, an email out of the blue from the project manager at Ninja Theory, which is the video game design studio in Cambridge, and he gave me a thumbnail sketch of what the game was, uh, you know, this Pictish warrior fighting her way through Viking monsters, and told me that they wanted her to have a psychotic illness, and would I be interested in, in, uh, in offering advice, because my, my clinical work and my research is, is around psychosis. So I was initially, um, you know, it was, it's not the usual email that one gets in my job. <laughs> no. Um, and I, I, I was aware that mental illness in video games had, had sometimes not been dealt with very sensitively. Um, but, but I was at the same time very intrigued because I, I think that video games re- represent a remarkable opportunity to actually put yourself in another's position. You know, you're an active participant that sees the world from another's point of view. So actually, I think they really have a lot of potential for, for giving people an experience or getting them to empathise with things like symptoms of mental illness. So, so I went along and it was very clear from meeting the team that they were really committed to a sort of sensitive and honest portrayal. And, and from then on, I, I really was, was hooked. From that point
2: onwards, once you'd had that initial meeting, uh, how would you describe your kind of
3: consultation on it? Well, um, it began really with sort of a fairly typical consultation where I went along and and sort of almost gave a bit of a symposium on what we mean by psychosis, this idea of altered perception of reality, hearing voices, seeing visions, uh, making a different sort of sense of the world, believing things that other people don't believe. And, and that led to um, further discussions, which actually then turned into quite long and, and far-ranging conversations. Um, that You know, I, I just kept coming back uh, to them and talking about the neuroscience of perception and, and how we think that the, you know, even the so-called normal, boringly sane brain is actually constantly on the verge of hallucinations because it's making up its own reality. And and so there was an awful lot of discussion about. How uh, within the context of the game it would be possible to replicate these effects of sort of the brain creating and, and responding to its reality, and then that that led further to me putting them in contact with people who have lived experience of psychosis, and we had some long and free ranging discussion with with groups uh, there who were very helpful, very honest, very sort of straight in describing their experiences and their own responses to it. So it's been a really far-ranging discussion, sharing literature, email, long email conversations, very very collaborative, uh, actually.
2: And um, have you got an example of, say, how something we understand about psychosis today fed into something that the developers then created in the game? Maybe it's some of the visual hallucinations or the auditory hallucinations.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, one example would be, you know, I I was sharing with them some first person accounts from papers in the 1960s, these sort of papers that gather dust and nobody reads anymore, but they've got very rich descriptions of, of how one's perceptual world can fragment as you move. So, you know, people have described how the world seems to be in one piece and then just as they go to make a movement, it seems to fragment in a jigsaw like way. And, and, you know, the artists would take ideas like that and accounts like that and actually put them on the screen in the game, and we could then review them. Um, and, of course, a, a lot of the people with the, the um, lived experience of psychosis, they would they would describe their own experiences, and the artists would go away, and a couple of weeks later we'd all meet up again. And there those experiences would be represented, and the, the, the person would say, well, yes, it's like that, or no, it's not. And so it was an iterative process of describing experiences and, and and sort of working them into the visual and the auditory scenario of the game if someone isn't familiar with
2: you know the term psychosis indeed there's probably i imagine a few misconceptions uh that bound about especially when you hear words like psychotic um what 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 does someone with psychosis uh you know what what do they experience and and what 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 is it's not a condition in itself is it
3: no, that's right. So I mean the first thing to do is acknowledge that as you say it's actually a a much misunderstood and very but sometimes very contentious term. Um it yeah, and, and I should add that, you know, some of the, the people with the lived experience would would reject the term psychosis as a description of their experiences, you know. But we, we didn't get too, too heavily into the nomenclature. But um, what it actually means formally, it, it's a description, not a diagnosis. And it means um, having a, a different or an unshared reality such that the things that you perceive in the world and the things that you believe about the world are not shared by the people around you. So sometimes it's referred to as a loss of contact with reality. And it really consists of two two sort of broad sets of experiences. One is the perception of things that aren't objectively there. And those are called hallucinations. So that would be, you know, those could be auditory or visual or tactile, or you may smell things or taste things that aren't there. And then on the other side, there are what are called delusional beliefs, which are these unusual seemingly false, bizarre, sometimes very frightening beliefs that people have and around which they they build their world and their actions. Um, so that's the description um, but it can have many many causes. Um, you know it, it can be caused by um, you know uh, People post-operatively can go through a sort of psychotic phase, um, people who have severe infections, lots of physical illnesses, neurological illnesses, and then um, there are also psychological causes, past traumas and anxiety and things like that.
2: So when we're talking about for example something like the hallucinations, how much do we understand about what's happening neurologically uh, what's happening in in the brain when these hallucinations occur?
3: well we don 't understand a great deal, actually you know lots of people have their pet theories, and those theories have been more or less successful when it comes to testing i think a a a powerful current idea is centered around the idea that it 's really a variation on normal brain functioning um, uh, and this draws on the idea that actually, as I said, most of us are creating our, our own worlds all the time. You know, we, we we feel that we have a very clear perspective on reality, but actually all we've got are these very noisy, very ambiguous sensory inputs, and we have to sort of assemble those into reality, into or in into our our model or experience of the world. And one theory about how we do that is that we use what we already know in order to make sense of Ambiguous signals, so we we essentially superimpose our own prior expectations on the world. And a the theory of hallucinations is that perhaps there's an enhanced tendency to superimpose expectations, so that you don't just change sensory input; you actually almost create it. Right. Um, and and you know this is interesting to me in many ways. One is that uh, it sort of relates. The experiences of psychosis to normal functioning. It's not saying that there's just a broken brain or a disordered brain. It's rather saying that there is a there is a, a system or mechanism that has has its balance changed, if you like. My, my own feeling is that if if we ask ourselves what what the brain is trying to do uh, in order to function, um, you know, I I think it is trying to model the world on the basis of very ambiguous partial, noisy sensory inputs. It's trying to somehow sort of hazard guesses about what's out there in order to predict them and so that we can survive within a noisy, uncertain world. Um, And I I think there are many, if if this involves this fine balance between what you expect and what the input is, then you can imagine that there must be multiple, many, many ways in which that balance can be shifted. And it might well be that irrespective of how that balance is shifted, whether it's a, a, an infection or it's um, you know a structural alteration or whether it's um, something more psychological, some experiential effect, it may be that psychosis is the final common pathway that uh, emerges because of the shift in balance.
2: Within that explanation, um, does that sort of count for... You know, whenever I've read, or you know, even when you're playing the game, a theme is the sort of realness of the hallucinations. It's not simply that they are you can dismiss them as uh, you know just simply not there. It's 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 this the kind of um, the stark realness of them. You know, how, how does that fit into that
3: picture? Well, I think um, I mean it, you, you're, I, you're certainly right to point out that one of the, the hallmarks of the real psychosis is the fact that that reality, even though it 's not shared by people around a person, um, it, it is real to them you know it's something in which they fully invest and something in which they 're completely immersed. I think there's actually a gradation. Uh, And that you can get instances where hallucinations occur, but a person retains insight, you know, that they they know that uh, they, they see the vision and it's a very real vision, but they know it doesn't reflect what's really out there. So a good example of that would be in a sensory deprivation chamber, where if you remove all sensory input within a short space of time, a person will be experiencing hallucinations. But they usually retain some sort of insight. They know that it's because they're in that setting that that uh, their experience of the world has changed. Similarly, when people take psychedelic drugs, you know they usually retain a degree of insight. So even though they're getting the vision or the visions and the voices and things, they nevertheless they attribute it to the drug rather than to reality. How common a theme is is
2: maliciousness? Because like in in the game. Uh, you you navigate the world essentially a lot of the time through the voices that um, Senua hears, and I think a, th- a theme there is that you're never sure which to trust because someone to seem to want to help you, some seem to want to hurt you, and and so I guess
3: how how common is that in in people who experience psychosis? It's a difficult one that because I I, I think that my own view might be quite biased because as a clinical psychiatrist I tend to see people. Who are suffering because of their experiences and so I'm more likely to see the people in whom the voices are nasty and critical and unpleasant and cause suffering but there are certainly people out there who you would not call mentally ill who are experiencing things like voices but in whom the voices can be quite helpful or even pleasant and enjoyable um, and, and this is certainly something that the, the the people with lived experience were keen to point out is that although a number of them have suffered very s- severely because of their experiences, nonetheless at times they can be helpful and they can be even beautiful um, and and rewarding. So, uh, you know, if it's part of an illness, I think it usually usually there's a, a sort of dark and bewildering and Sometimes very threatening component to it, but that doesn't mean that all voices and visions are are like that. Do you have much insight into what
2: um, mental health would have been treated like back in? I guess you know when we're going back to the game, it's Viking times. But even you know in 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 that kind of period, how how would senya herself have seen the condition? In in the game, they call it the darkness. Um, is that is that realistic?
3: um i it's a good question i mean clearly it would be anachronistic to apply modern day diagnoses and formulations to Senua because of course she she came from within a very particular culture and culture plays a big part in shaping how we define and experience mental illness but i, I was uh, uh in in sort of as as we were talking and collaborating and uh moving forward, I, I was able to find a PhD thesis within Cambridge University written by somebody who uh, was interested in legal definitions of mental illness in Celtic Britain. And one thing that was very striking is that uh, they actually had quite a sophisticated way of um, of conceiving of, of mental illness, mental distress. And would recognize that that there would be different types and that uh, these would manifest in different ways and perhaps would require different sorts of care or different sorts of... I mean, they didn't have formal treatment, but the way that they treated people would be different. Uh, and, you know, the, the explanations were clearly around whether somebody had offended the gods or whether they had uh, done something that was immoral, immoral and therefore were being persecuted for it. But nonetheless, there was still, I think, a relatively surprisingly sophisticated, you know, willingness to, to recognise different sorts of altered experience of reality.
2: That surprised me, I think, when I uh, saw that in the game. Um, yeah, it surprised me too, actually. <laughs> so we, we we touched on it at the start that um, uh, you yourself had um, sat through the game and, and you had several um, patients uh, who had experienced psychosis reviewing it H- how, how to someone like me who's never experienced it and who has very limited knowledge how realistic a portrayal is it you know what are the things that f- feel realistic to someone looking at it who's
3: experienced psychosis themselves I think it achieves interesting and, and very um, sort of impressive goals at a number of levels so in terms of representing just purely the sensory experience i think it's it's really very uh, well researched so the experience of voices being outside one of voices talking to each other about senua or talking directly to senua of being either helpful or or critical or misleading i think i think that is that is very very striking um, The visual perceptual changes, which are perhaps less striking, are nonetheless very redolent of what people in early phases of psychosis will often describe. This feeling that the the world is slightly changing shape, that it's melting, that that they somehow have to put the pieces of the world together into a coherent whole. And this, again, is something that um, the the people with lived experience of psychosis commented on and, and, and said very, were, were very positive about that it had got the visual um, side of things just right. Um, and I, On top of that, I think what's been really important and impressive to me is that it's not just a sort of checklist of symptoms, you know, it's not that, okay, we've done the voices, we've done the visions, uh, now let's give her a little bit of uh, sort of darkness creeping around or funny noises um it's much more about uh, a whole experience of a person trying to make sense of a bewildering and very threatening world and in that respect i was i was really touched by the response of some of the people with well of all of the people involved who had lived experience of psychosis is that they all commented on the fact that she's a hero you know she's not a she's not a hapless victim she's somebody who's trying to make sense of the world and, and stand up to it uh, without it being a sort of, I mean, one of them said, we don't want Disney, we want something that's realistic. And I, th- I think they got that, we got that. Yeah. Yeah. I was very impressed with what the team have done. Could you give us some
2: insight into how, um, obviously it would, I suppose, vary with the cause, but how, how in a clinic you treat psychosis?
3: So in the clinic, really, uh the approach tends to be a mixture of what, you know, the, the aim is to be as precise as possible to a person's own needs. So very often psychosis is brought on and worsened by social factors such as stress and uh, harassment and things like that. So that's one aspect that you need to um, take into account. There's also the sort of long-standing psychological um uh, schema that a person may have, uh, you know, that might worsen or exacerbate the psychotic experiences. So perhaps a past history of uh, of trauma or concurrent anxiety. And then on top of that, there's medication, which is... Um, never ideal because of side effects but in some cases it's it's needed and can do a lot of a lot of good for someone so generally uh, the treatments tend to be a mixture of psychological therapies social changes and and uh, pharmacological treatment if necessary
2: when it comes to psychosis and what we understand about the brain um do we understand much about certain brain regions or essentially um, I've read about things to do with you know the frontal cortex which is traditionally to do with decision making uh, and and its connection to the sort of more primitive brainstem areas which deal with fear and emotions and 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 their their communication with each other being what's our understanding of that
3: like yeah so I mean, with the advent of brain imaging technologies and a renewed interest in the biology of, uh, or, you know, the neurobiology of cognitive processes, there have been some really intriguing um, observations about altered processing in certain regions of the brain in psychosis. So, for example, uh, one suggestion has been that the reward system is overreactive, and as a consequence. Normally neutral stimuli actually become very engaging, very um, very salient, and they require they require a sort of attention and explanation that can be part of the psychotic experience. And this has been related to to changes in function of the neurotransmitter dopamine. So there's there's a number of intriguing observations out there, um, but the problem I think is 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 that there is no one psychosis. So it may well be that what we're on the verge of is finding ways to break things down, to find the underlying causes, treating psychosis itself as a sort of final common pathway. So just as with something like, um, I don't know, delirium might manifest in confusion and raised temperature and that sort of thing, nobody would say that there's just one reason for being delirious. There are multiple, multiple reasons and, and the challenge actually is to get below the surface and, and find out what these different causes are. And in some cases, it, it is very likely to be something like an altered dopaminergic function. In other cases, it may well be something autoimmune. There's increasing evidence of changes in immune function in, in a small percentage of people with psychosis and in still others, it may be a long-standing alteration in psychological functions.
2: And just to go back to uh, when you played the game the first time, uh, sorry, when you when you you saw the finished product, what was your experience of it? How did you feel seeing this project that you'd worked
3: on for three years uh, come to life? Well, it was I mean, it was extraordinarily rewarding. Um, I mean, I, I should be reasonably diffident about this and say that I gave advice and I collaborated and I chatted with them. But actually, the, the Ninja Theory team. Um, Really have 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 sort of created this from uh, their own talents and skills and their discussions with the um, people with lived experience of psychosis. So I I was simultaneously blown away by their achievements and and very proud of the fact that I had a small part to play in it. And all the time I was anxiously um, watching the reactions of the people themselves who've experienced psychosis. And the most rewarding bit was at the end when it was very clear to me that they they themselves were very proud of it as well. And are you aware of anything else like this where
2: um, we, we've all been talking about the game of the team, we can't think of many other uh, examples of this where you get to get real insight into a mental health condition uh, mm. Potentially through a
3: medium that you can actually experience to a degree yourself. Yeah, well, that's what excited me from the start, because, you know, if if I had more time on my hands and fewer responsibilities, I think I would play games a lot more. And one of the things that really attracts me to them as a, as a developing art form is that it, they are very participatory. You can't help but immerse yourself if it's a good game. Um, and I have been aware of other other uses of mental health in the context of video games. And in fact, there was a review paper written in, I think, 2015, uh, reviewing the last couple of years of best-selling games and how they'd used mental illness. And it's, it's not a pretty sight, really. They, it seems that um, in the vast majority that the, the, the use of mental illness was really to just uh, explain the actions of somebody that would be described as a, a homicidal maniac. Right. so generally that what they've done is they've aligned mental illness with irrational behavior and violence and i think that's a real shame because actually as i've said that within the context of playing the game there's a there's an opportunity to do something much more profound and a much more empathic
2: hmm. and do you think that's a that's a somewhat wider
3: problem as well isn't it i think Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't um, lay the blame at the, the, the feet of the video game industry. I think they just reflect the sort of general cultural uh, tendency to explain seemingly inexplicable behaviours uh, in terms of mental illness. Um, you know, there's there's just a sort of, oh, it must be mental illness. And in fact, a lot of the time, that's very superficial. Mm. And, and And in the context of this...
2: Are patients that experience psychosis, you know, are they characteristically dangerous?
3: No. Um, The majority of uh, violence in the context of that sort of mental illness is, is with them as victims rather than perpetrators of violence.
2: Professor Paul Fletcher there. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. This month's issue explores the mysteries of interstellar space the science of -of out-of-body experiences and it takes a look at the project that will chart every cell in the human body and of course much more.
1: Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in
3: your app store.